They came to Bethsaida. They had brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out to the village, or out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them not to tell anyone about this. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes to be killed and to rise after three days. This has been the word of the Lord. Now, would you pray with me before we uh, dive into our passage? Thank you. All right, let's pray. Father, we ask that as we, as we look at your word, would we be able to see more clearly uh, not just who you are, but how you're working in your creation. Uh, would you be glorified through our time, and would we come away with uh, a clearer vision of you? In your name we pray, amen. Well, when I, was, uh, when I was a kid growing up, my family and I, for some reason, we watched this movie probably more than most. Uh, it was called Kicking and Screaming. It's like a family comedy type movie. And uh, at the end of the movie, there's a final championship game. And there's this goalie for the team. And he's always diving in the wrong direction whenever the ball comes his way. And the championship game, finally somebody realizes, wow, this kid can't see. So they come bring him some glasses, and then he starts making all these amazing saves left and right. He finally understood. He was, he was able to understand the whole time what he needed to do. He was trying to save shots every time they came. But now when he finally got his glasses, he was finally able to actually do what he was trying to do, what he was supposed to do. And I think as we come to our text today, I think it will be helpful to consider that goalie, to consider that scene, to keep it in our mind. I've titled the sermon today, Good News for the Blind, or could almost say it's good news for those with blurry vision. And we're going to see examples of how God gives sight. I'm not just talking about literal vision, but spiritual vision. Like that goalie, I think as followers of Jesus today, as his church, we need to be healed of some blurry vision. That way we can see more clearly how God is working through the church uh, today in our world. But before we go any further, I think I just should stop and clarify one thing. You might be wondering, as the passage was read by Isaac, you might be thinking, this is a story about a blind man, and then this is a story, to a separate story about Peter, Jesus' a disciple, making a confession. At first glance, you might think that those are two separate stories that have really nothing to do with each other. They might just happen to be placed next to each other in Scripture. But no, what we're coming to today is really two 
stories of the same thing. It's just that one is of a physical blindness, and the other story is of a spiritual blindness. When Peter confesses that Jesus is Christ, we see that he has been healed of a spiritual blindness. But just because he confesses him as Christ, it doesn't mean that he sees everything completely clear. And that's what we're going to look at and wrestle with through this passage today, is how someone can see Jesus clearly, but still miss at the ways that Jesus is at work. See, Jesus has power, and Peter recognized it, but he didn't understand how Jesus was going to use that power. So as we come to our passage today, we're confronted with the reality that even though we may see who Jesus is, there are still more ways we need to keep looking for how he's at work. We need to keep asking God to remove our blurry vision so we can see how his kingdom is at hand. So to better understand our passage, I think we can take a quick look at what's going around uh, these two stories. Last week, Aaron preached on a rather frustrating experience uh, for Jesus with his disciples in that they had a lot of uh, lacking faith. They had a lot of uh, things they didn't understand. And Jesus had some pretty strong questions for them. He said, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? He even said, do you have eyes but not see? They had some serious misunderstandings about what Jesus was trying to accomplish in his ministry. And then next week, uh, as we get into further into Mark's gospel, we're going to see how Jesus and his, is talking to his disciples, and they still don't understand how he's going to use his power as the Christ. And Jesus rebukes Peter very strongly for this. Peter says he will never let Jesus be killed. He is very adamant that he is going to defend Jesus to the end. He's going to be a good foot soldier, and he is not going to let anything happen to his leader. But Jesus has some very strong words that we'll look at next week. And he rebukes Peter strongly because he says that Peter is thinking like a man, not like God. We need to have a mind, we need to have our mind on the things of God and not man. Well, if we look at these two stories, I think we first have to answer some questions. When we look at the story of the physical healing, of the physical blind man, it's a little unique and it's a little strange and I think it deserves a little bit of uh, explanation. But first, when we think of healings, when you look at all of the different healings that we've come to in the Gospels, we've seen lots of them as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, you might have noticed by now that all of the healings that Jesus does, they're quite different. That's because all of the healings that Jesus uh, does for people is that they're unique. They are specific to the people that he heals, and there's not just a physical healing going on. When Jesus comes in contact with someone, the physical healing is not the most important thing. The most important thing is the spiritual healing. And that is why these two stories are so connected uh, today. So what, what lesson is Jesus trying to teach when he comes to the physical blind man? I think we can agree that it's not that Jesus doesn't have enough power to heal this blind man in one attempt. Right? We see even two weeks later, uh, in a couple weeks we'll read a passage where Jesus doesn't even touch the blind man. He just says you're healed and he's healed. We see other examples of the person who Jesus heals, they're not even there. They're in a faraway city, and he heals them without even seeing them. There's other examples of people just touching Jesus, and they're healed. So what's Jesus trying to teach us? What's he trying to teach his disciples, and then ultimately us, with this kind of two-step uh, healing of a physical blind man? 
Well, I think that as we look in the text, we see that after Jesus touches his eyes, we see that he sees something, but it's blurry. He sees people, but it looks like they're trees walking around. And then after a second uh, touch, he's fully healed and can see clearly. And as we equate that and we look to Peter's confession, if you look in your look in the Bible, you look at the two sections, they're almost identical in length, and if you were to kind of break it out line by line, it's almost identical, and they mirror each other in the way that these uh, physical healing and spiritual healing happens. But I think what it goes to show us is that when the physical blind man is healed, he's able to see things only part clearly. When Peter is healed and he's able to have this confession that Jesus is Christ, He's still only partly healed. His vision is still blurry. And we don't see, in Peter's healing, we don't see a complete healing. And we'll talk about that more as to what it looks like to be completely healed uh, as a follower of Jesus. I think what we have to come to as an understanding, though, when we look at the blind man, both physically and in Peter's blindness, is that on a spiritual sense, we're all born blind. There's nobody that's been born into this world except for Jesus. There's nobody who's been born into this world who isn't spiritually blind. We all have to be revealed. It all has to be revealed to us, the truth of who God is. And Matthew's account of this same event has a little more detail. There's further conversation that is uh, explained. And Jesus tells Peter, when Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus tells him, he says, blessed are you for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, that's something we can't overlook. That's something I realized in looking at this passage, that in order to understand who Jesus is, we have to understand that it's been revealed to us. The truth of the gospel has to be something that God opens our eyes to. And that's further clarified throughout all of Scripture. As you look at one example from the letter to the Philippians, They're commanded to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, there's this tension in that we're commanded to work out our salvation, but at the same time, as we're working out, we're understanding and realizing that God is the one who is doing the work through us. So I want us to think, as we go about our life, as we aim to glorify God, are we aware that what we're doing, what we're striving for, is being fueled by God. God is the one at work in us. And I think that will really change our perspective if we haven't been living in that way. See, the church should never take for granted that God has revealed himself to us. Because our spiritual spiritual sight is solely dependent on God. And in Matthew's, uh, also in Matthew's account of this story, Jesus tells Peter that he will build his church, that Jesus will build the church on this rock. Now that's been misinterpreted to think that Jesus would build his church on Peter, literally. What he's really saying, Jesus is telling Peter and his disciples that I will build my church on your confession. The reality and the foundational truth of the church is that Jesus is the Christ. It's that confession of where we find our identity, of where we have our purpose, and really what makes the church Uh, the church, and we can't lose sight of that. I think that's why it's so important for uh, the whole gospel story 
as we're going through Mark, today is kind of this uh, peak, in a sense, in that everything that is going through these first eight chapters has been leading to this moment of Peter confessing Jesus to be the Christ. Because Jesus has been doing lots of miracles, he's been teaching, uh, he's been doing lots of healings, and all of the things we've seen in these first eight chapters, they've been culminating to this moment in our text where Jesus' disciples, where his closest followers, recognize him to be the Christ. So we've concluded part one. If you really think of the Gospel of Mark, this is the end of part one, and we're going to go for the rest of our time in Mark is going to be considered point two, uh, part two. Uh, and we'll get into a little bit of a sneak peek of part two at the end of the sermon today. But before we go any further, we have to stop and sit at the idea, at the heart of uh, what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. I think that's something that uh, deserves time to be spent on. So when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, what does he mean? Well, from a literal sense, the word uh, Christ is the, the translate, it's a Greek word, and it's translated from Messiah. So if you see this word Messiah in the Old Testament, it's the same exact word in uh, the New Testament as Christ, and they both mean the same thing. They mean anointed one. And Christ is a title, and it's used a lot throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the word Messiah that you would see in the Old Testament is found quite often to like describe a prophet or a priest or a king someone who is anointed to carry out God's message or to do something for God. So you'll see this title of Messiah used all the time throughout the Bible. And that's why there's rumors going around when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? People think of them in that category. They think of him as one who's a messenger, that he's sent by God. They think, you know, people are saying he's a prophet. Maybe he's Elijah or John the Baptist, that he's someone who has a message from God. But what the people were missing, uh, what they had that was wrong was their perspective was too small. Their scope was too narrow. And we have to be on guard of that today, that we, would, we need to be careful that we don't look at Jesus and put him in too small of a light. Because Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a priest. He wasn't just a king. He wasn't any of those things, just one of them. He was all of them. And that's what Peter's eyes were opened up to. That's what the eyes of his heart were opened up to when he confessed Jesus to be the Christ. Because there's an idea throughout the Old Testament that there would be someone who would come who would be capable of holding all three of those offices together, a prophet, a priest, and a king, who would be able to fill all those roles fully. And they wouldn't just be a messenger, but they would have divine power. And this person is referred to in the Old Testament also as the Son of Man. And it's another title which we're introduced to in verse 31, that the Son of Man would be the Messiah or the Christ. In the Old Testament, this Son of Man is portrayed as coming down to his people and establishing a new kingdom. And the passage that Don read from Daniel conveys so clearly the reality of what the Christ would be. He is the one who holds all power and all authority and dominion over all of creation for all time. And that's what makes Peter's confession so powerful. And Peter's confession shows us that Jesus' closest followers, 
they understood from the very beginning that Jesus wasn't just a prophet, but that he was divine. And we see this backed up when Jesus is on trial at the end of his life on earth. The Jewish leaders who he's brought to, as they're having a trial, they're charging him with blasphemy, and they want to know. They ask him point blank. The high priest says in Matthew 26, 63, he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. These religious leaders understood the gravity of someone proclaiming to be what Jesus was proclaiming to be. And when Jesus responds in the affirmative, what do those high priests do? They tear their robes and they condemn Jesus to death. But unfortunately, in their complete blindness, they were missing. They couldn't see the truth of how the Christ would obtain his glory and power. And that brings us to part two of this book of Mark in the Gospel account of Mark. That's what our final passage gives us a sneak peek of. You see, Peter and his disciples have made it clear now that they know part one. Part one of Mark was building to show that Jesus is the Christ. And they've learned that Jesus has power and authority over all things. They've seen it firsthand and they are convinced of it. But now what they must learn and what we must continue to learn as we go through the second half of Mark, we must learn how Jesus yields that power. How does Jesus use his authority? And let's read in verse 31 when Jesus has his first opportunity to explain the disciples, now that they've understood he's the Christ, what is the first thing that he points to to help explain what he's going to do? It says in verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus the Christ holds all power all authority over all of creation. And he is going to usher in his new kingdom. That's what he came to earth to do. And how does he say that it's going to happen? It's not through a military conquest. It's not through worldly powers. See, the disciples couldn't fathom this when he first say, says this, as we'll get into next week. Their reaction is, is they're just dumbfounded by it. They couldn't believe it. But as they will slowly begin to learn through the rest of the Gospels, uh, through the rest of this Gospel story, is that Jesus uses his power to establish not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. For his kingdom is not of this world. And when we, conf when we confess Jesus as the Christ, we are professing allegiance to that kingdom above all else. But this kingdom doesn't operate like anything this world has ever seen or any system that this world has been able to create. See, Jesus uses his power, his authority as the Christ to save others. He right away heads to the cross, not in weakness, but he goes to the cross in power. And we're gonna learn in the coming weeks that Jesus' death and resurrection are where we find our identity as well, combined with that confession that he is the Christ. Those two hand in hand are the summary and the focus of Mark's gospel. And what we have to start to learn is that Jesus uses his power and authority as the Christ to lay his life down for his creation so that we may be made right with God. 
And it's that truth which has been the message of the church. It's what should be the message of the church because it builds off of the confession that Peter had made. So what do we, what do we come away with? Where do we go from here as we realize lesson one, that Jesus is the Christ, and as we're moving towards lesson two, that Jesus uh, is going to lay down his life? Hopefully we're able to see uh, from our passage today, we can see Jesus more clearly. Uh, we, we have to know, though, that from this uh, imagery of the physical blind man and the spiritual blind, blindness of Peter, we have to live with the reality, though, uh, that our vision is going to be blurry. Even when we profess Jesus to be the Christ, our vision will never be fully cleared this side of eternity. But we do have the assurance that Christ's blood is what cleanses us. We know that our performance is not what keeps us on the team. See, God doesn't threaten to keep us out of heaven if we don't perform to a certain level. Instead, God revealed himself to all of creation through Jesus, and he just asks that we identify him for who he really is. And when we do that, well, we're going to begin this process of being healed from our spiritual blindness. But it doesn't happen all at once. There are going to be times in our lives, and I'm not that old, but I have lots of times in my life where I can think, I'm sure all of you can, that we're not going to see things clearly. It's going to happen over and over again. That's the reality of being sinful creatures and living in a sinful world, that despite coming to a realization and a confession that Jesus is the Christ, we still at times are going to have blurry vision. But I think what's important uh, that we have to come away with today is that we can't, uh, we can't be fooled into thinking that our vision is always clear. You see, we have to be uh, convinced that we are going to hold on to Christ and that we are going to keep looking for him. But if we start to think that our vision is always clear all the time, that's when things have gone off the rails for the church throughout history. Because if we get fooled into thinking that we have it all figured out, we're going to very quickly start to abuse whatever power we have in our circle of influences. And there's a, there's a line from uh, Kirk Franklin and Lecrae of a song called Sunday Morning, and they, I think they put it really straight this way. They said, if what you see is all you see, then you do not see all there is to be seen. See, I think God is at work in ways that are so much greater, so much higher than we can ever imagine. And if we think that we know it all, I think we've got, we've got some big problems going on in our own hearts. See, we need to start with the profession of Christ. That is key, that is foundational. That is the identity of a believer who calls himself a Christian, is to profess Jesus as the Christ who holds all power and authority. But there are things we cannot see, and we have to have faith uh, in the one who does see all things. See, we're broken people, but God still uses us as broken people to restore this broken world. And we can't let that embolden us to try to use God for our own purposes or use religion to do what we want to do. But to have that reality, it should embolden us to proclaim Christ and to point others to him. Because it's him who we're dependent on. If we have anything, if we're to boast in anything, all we can boast on is what Christ has done. Uh, as, as the famous 
Christian song goes, the open the eyes of my heart. I think that that phrase is so uh, helpful in understanding this reality is that that is the mark of a Christian, that our, that our heart, the eyes of our heart are open and they are looking to Christ. But it's not always easy. The, temp- the temptation to put our desires, to put our ideas of what we think is right, that's very strong. Those temptations are very real. Uh, I was reminded of it this week. We were at, I was at a museum that had an exhibit on ancient uh, Mesopotamia, and I was sitting down for a few minutes and overheard a tour guide showing some students and uh, some of these miniature statues and the people of ancient Mesopotamia, some of the first people ever around. They would take these little statues that they made to look like themselves. They were supposedly carved to look like them. And they would go put them in the temple where the gods supposedly would look down. And the tour guide asked the students, what do you see about their eyes? And the students were like, they're wide open. She's like, exactly. They would carve the eyes of these little statues to try to fool the gods so that when the gods would look down at the temple, they would see these people looking up in awe of them and worshiping them. And this phrase that she used that that really just like stuck out to me, she said, they were kind of like trying to trick God in a benign way. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, I, I think that we can look at those people in ancient Mesopotamia and be like, that's so ridiculous that they would try to do that. But then if we really think about it, it's like, wow, how often are we trying to trick God in a benign way? How quick and how easy it is to justify that what we want to do, oh, that's probably what God wants to do. We have to continually self-examine and continually ask God that he would heal us of our spiritual blindness, that our blurry vision uh, would be turned into clearer vision as we walk down the road following Christ. I think that's a, that story is a reminder and a warning to us that we can't just come to church on Sunday and think that uh, our spiritual vision is going to be crystal clear. Uh, there's, a, there's a danger, I think, if, if I could put it this way. You can't, just, you can't just think that once you make this confession that Jesus is the Christ, that once you make the Christian confession and, and you identify as a Christian, you don't just, there's not just a line in the sand and you step over and you say, all right, I'm in. I'm here. I did it. That's not what Jesus is displaying here for his disciples. What he's putting in front of them, this reality of, yes, you do have to make the confession. You do have to identify him correctly. But at the same time, as we focus on the cross, Jesus is making it, uh, the path to him is not just you enter and you're in. He is at the center of everything. Jesus is at the center of everything we do, and if we are to proclaim him as the Christ, it's not just a, I go once a week or I identify with this group of people. It's every decision we make. It's every little thing to every big thing that we do. It's aimed to see through the lens of Jesus. So day in and day out, we need to devote ourselves to praying that God would make himself more clear to us. And I think the verse... uh, The idea that we do not lean on our own understanding is a prayer that we can very much take away from this passage. But again, I'll remind us one more time that it's not our ability, uh, it's not our performance that helps, uh, that keeps us on God's team or that would allow us to be faithful to God. While we go through life 
at times with blurry vision, uh, there's good news for us because it's through the grace of God alone, it's through his faithfulness that we are able uh, to have salvation. It might sound a little frustrating or perplexing or sad, or you might have a range of emotions to think that, wait, I have to go through this life with blurry spiritual vision. Uh, but Paul addresses this in his letter to uh, the church at Corinth, and I think it's encouragement for us today. It's just the reality of the broken world that we live in and our sinful nature that we can't escape this side of heaven. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, referring to in heaven, we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have now been fully known. See, when we think of uh, having blurry vision, it could be discouraging, but I think at the end of the day, it's the reality of being human. See, it says at the end that even as I have been fully known, only God can fully know. Uh, and as we live this life of faith, we have to take rest in the fact that God knows us, not be constantly uh, worrying that we're unable uh, to keep finding him because God will not let go of us if we are faithful and confess to him. We can't see it all, but he does, and let's take some assurance and uh, eternal rest in that. And let's look forward to the day which he has promised us when we will be able to see him clearly, when we will see him face to face, when we will see him in his full majesty and glory. And what a beautiful day it will be when we get to see face to face our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, sitting on his throne. Now as a final word of encouragement, I'll leave us with this command from the author uh, to the letter of uh, the Hebrews. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. My friends, don't grow weary and lose heart, but keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And remember, even though you see Jesus, always be looking for how he is at work Continue to ask God to remove your blurry vision so that you can see more clearly how God is working in you, how God is working through you, and how he is working around you, all for his glory. Amen. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you for your faithfulness uh, to us. Thank you for the way that uh, you came down from heaven to to save us and to give us, uh, to give us the ability to see you clearly uh, through the incarnation of Christ. And we ask that uh, as we go from here today that our, our vision would be continually made more clear so that we'd be able to see the ways that uh, you are glorifying yourself uh, through, uh, through the work that you're doing in your kingdom. It's in your name we pray, amen.